File 33 of A Treatise of Human Nature by David Hume. Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by George Yeager. Book 1. Part 4. Section 2. Of Skepticism with Regard to the Senses. First Half. Thus the skeptic still continues to reason and believe, even though he asserts that he cannot defend his reason by reason, and by the same rule he must assent to the principle concerning the existence of body, though he cannot pretend by any arguments of philosophy to maintain its veracity. Nature has not left this to his choice and has doubtless esteemed it an affair of too great importance to be trusted to our uncertain reasonings and speculations. We may well ask what causes induce us to believe in the existence of body. But it is in vain to ask whether there be body or not. That is a point which we must take for granted in all our reasonings. The subject, then, of our present inquiry is concerning the causes which induce us to believe in the existence of body, and my reasonings on this head I shall begin with a distinction which at first sight may seem superfluous, but which will contribute very much to the perfect understanding of what follows. We ought to examine apart those two questions which are commonly confounded together, that is, why we attribute a continued existence to objects, even when they are not present to the senses, and why we suppose them to have an existence distinct from the mind and perception. Under this last head I comprehend their situation as well as relations their external position, as well as the independence of their existence and operation. These two questions concerning the continued and distinct existence of body are intimately connected together. For if the objects of our senses continue to exist, even when they are not perceived, their existence is, of course, independent of and distinct from the perception and vice versa, if their existence be independent of the perception and distinct from it, they must continue to exist even though they be not perceived. But though the decision of the one question decides the other, yet that we may the more easily discover the principles of human nature from whence the decision arises, we shall carry along with us this distinction and shall consider whether it be the senses, reason, or the imagination that produces the opinion of a continued or of a distinct existence. These are the only questions that are intelligible on the present subject. For as to the notion of external existence, when taken for something specially different from our perceptions, see Part 2, Section 6, we have already shown its absurdity. To begin with the senses, 
it is evident these faculties are incapable of giving rise to the notion of the continued existence of their objects after they no longer appear to the senses for that is a contradiction in terms and supposes that the senses continue to operate even after they have ceased all manner of operation these faculties therefore if they have any influence in the present case must produce the opinion of a distinct not of a continued existence and in order to that must present their impressions either as images and representations or as these very distinct and external existences that our senses offer not their impressions as the images of something distinct or independent and external is evident because they convey to us nothing but a single perception and never give us the least intimation of anything beyond a single perception can never produce the idea of a double existence but by some inference either of the reason or imagination when the mind looks farther than what immediately appears to it its conclusions can never be put to the account of the senses and it certainly looks farther when from a single perception it infers a double existence and supposes the relations of resemblance and causation betwixt them if our senses therefore suggest any idea of distinct existences they must convey the impressions as those very existences by a kind of fallacy and illusion upon this head we may observe that all sensations are felt by the mind such as they really are and that when we doubt whether they present themselves as distinct objects or as mere impressions the difficulty is not concerning their nature but concerning their relations and situation now if the senses presented our impressions as external to and independent of ourselves both the objects and ourselves must be obvious to our senses otherwise they could not be compared by these faculties the difficulty then is how far we are ourselves the objects of our senses it is certain there is no question in philosophy more abstruse than that concerning identity and the nature of the uniting principle which constitutes a person so far from being able by our senses merely to determine this question we must have recourse to the most profound metaphysics to give a satisfactory answer to it and in common life it is evident these ideas of self and person are never very fixed nor determinate it is absurd therefore to imagine the senses can ever distinguish betwixt ourselves and external objects add to this that every impression external and internal passions affections sensations pains and pleasures are originally on the same footing and that whatever other differences we may observe among them they appear all of them in their true colors as impressions or perceptions and indeed 
if we consider the matter aright, it is scarce possible it should be otherwise. Nor is it conceivable that our senses should be more capable of deceiving us in the situation and relations than in the nature of our impressions. For since all actions and sensations of the mind are known to us by consciousness, they must necessarily appear in every particular what they are and be what they appear. Everything that enters the mind, being in reality a perception, it is impossible anything should to feeling appear different. This were to suppose that even where we are most intimately conscious, we might be mistaken. But not to lose time in examining whether it is possible for our senses to deceive us, and represent our perceptions as distinct from ourselves, that is as external to, and independent of us, let us consider whether they really do so, and whether this error proceeds from an immediate sensation, or from some other causes. To begin with the question concerning external existence, it may perhaps be said that setting aside the metaphysical question of the identity of a thinking substance, our own body evidently belongs to us, and as several impressions appear exterior to the body, we suppose them also exterior to ourselves. The paper on which I write at present is beyond my hand. The table is beyond the paper. The walls of the chamber beyond the table. And in casting my eye towards the window, I perceive a great extent of fields and buildings beyond my chamber. From all this it may be inferred that no other faculty is required beside the senses to convince us of the external existence of body. But to prevent this inference, we need only weigh the three following considerations. First, that properly speaking, it is not our body we perceive when we regard our limbs and members, but certain impressions which enter by the senses, so that the ascribing a real and corporeal existence to these impressions, or to their objects, is an act of the mind as difficult to explain as that which we examine at present. Secondly, sounds and tastes and smells, though commonly regarded by the mind as continued independent qualities, appear not to have any existence in extension, and consequently cannot appear to the senses as situated externally to the body. The reason why we ascribe a place to them shall be considered afterwards. Thirdly, even our sight informs us not of distance or outness, so to speak, immediately and without a certain reasoning and experience, as is acknowledged by the most rational philosophers. As to the independency of our perceptions on ourselves, this can never be an object of the senses, but any opinion we form concerning it must be derived from experience and observation. And we shall see afterwards that our conclusions from experience 
are far from being favourable to the doctrine of the independency of our perceptions. Meanwhile, we may observe that when we talk of real distinct existences, we have commonly more in our eye their independency than external situation in place, and think an object has a sufficient reality when its being is uninterrupted and independent of the incessant revolutions which we are conscious of in ourselves. Thus, to resume what I have said concerning the senses. They give us no notion of continued existence, because they cannot operate beyond the extent in which they really operate. They as little produce the opinion of a distinct existence, because they neither can offer it to the mind as represented, nor as original. To offer it as represented, they must present both an object and an image. To make it appear as original, they must convey a falsehood, and this falsehood must lie in the relations and situation, in order to which they must be able to compare the object with ourselves, and even in that case they do not, nor is it possible they should, deceive us. We may therefore conclude with certainty that the opinion of a continued and of a distinct existence never arises from the senses. To confirm this, we may observe that there are three different kinds of impressions conveyed by the senses. The first are those of the figure, bulk, motion, and solidity of bodies. The second, those of colors, tastes, smells, sounds, heat, and cold. The third are the pains and pleasures that arise from the application of objects to our bodies, as by the cutting of our flesh with steel, and such like. Both philosophers and the vulgar suppose the first of these to have a distinct continued existence. The vulgar only regard the second as on the same footing. Both philosophers and the vulgar, again, esteem the third to be merely perceptions and consequently interrupted and dependent beings. Now it is evident that whatever may be our philosophical opinion, colors, sounds, heat, and cold, as far as appears to the senses, exist after the same manner with motion and solidity, and that the difference we make betwixt them in this respect arises not from the mere perception. So strong is the prejudice for the distinct continued existence of the former qualities, that when the contrary opinion is advanced by modern philosophers, people imagine they can almost refute it from their feeling and experience, and that their very senses contradict this philosophy. It is also evident that colors, sounds, etc., are originally on the same footing with the pain that arises from steel, and pleasure that proceeds from a fire, and that the difference betwixt them is founded neither on perception nor reason, but on the imagination. For as they are confessed to be, 
both of them, nothing but perceptions arising from the particular configurations and motions of the parts of body, wherein possibly can their difference consist. Upon the whole, then, we may conclude that as far as the senses are judges, all perceptions are the same in the manner of their existence. We may also observe, in this instance of sounds and colors, that we can attribute a distinct continued existence to objects without ever consulting reason or weighing our opinions by any philosophical principles. And indeed, whatever convincing arguments philosophers may fancy they can produce to establish the belief of objects independent of the mind, it is obvious these arguments are known but to very few, and that it is not by them that children, peasants, and the greatest part of mankind are induced to attribute objects to some impressions and deny them to others. Accordingly, we find that all the conclusions which the vulgar form on this head are directly contrary to those which are confirmed by philosophy. For philosophy informs us that everything which appears to the mind is nothing but a perception, and is interrupted and dependent on the mind, whereas the vulgar confound perceptions and objects, and attribute a distinct continued existence to the very things they feel or see. This sentiment, then, as it is entirely unreasonable, must proceed from some other faculty than the understanding, to which we may add that as long as we take our perceptions and objects to be the same, we can never infer the existence of the one from that of the other, nor form any argument from the relation of cause and effect, which is the only one that can assure us of matter of fact. Even after we distinguish our perceptions from our objects, it will appear presently that we are still incapable of reasoning from the existence of one to that of the other. So that, upon the whole, our reason neither does, nor is it possible it ever should, upon any supposition, give us an assurance of the continued and distinct existence of body that opinion must be entirely owing to the imagination, which must now be the subject of our inquiry. Since all impressions are internal and perishing existences, and appear as such, the notion of their distinct and continued existence must arise from a concurrence of some of their qualities with the qualities of the imagination. And since this notion does not extend to all of them, it must arise from certain qualities peculiar to some impressions. It will therefore be easy for us to discover these qualities by a comparison of the impressions to which we attribute a distinct and continued existence with those which we regard as internal and perishing. We may observe, then, that it is neither upon account of the involuntariness of certain impressions 
as is commonly supposed, nor of their superior force and violence that we attribute to them a reality and continued existence, which we refuse to others that are voluntary or feeble. For it is evident our pains and pleasures, our passions and affections, which we never suppose to have any existence beyond our perception, operate with greater violence and are equally involuntary as the impressions of figure and extension, color and sound, which we suppose to be permanent beings. The heat of a fire, when moderate, is supposed to exist in the fire. But the pain, which it causes upon a near approach, is not taken to have any being except in the perception. These vulgar opinions, then, being rejected, we must search for some other hypothesis by which we may discover those peculiar qualities in our impressions which makes us attribute to them a distinct and continued existence. After a little examination, we shall find that all those objects to which we attribute a continued existence have a peculiar constancy which distinguishes them from the impressions whose existence depends upon our perception. Those mountains and houses and trees which lie at present under my eye have always appeared to me in the same order, and when I lose sight of them by shutting my eyes or turning my head, I soon after find them return upon me without the least alteration. My bed and table, my books and papers, present themselves in the same uniform manner, and change not upon account of any interruption in my seeing or perceiving them. This is the case with all the impressions whose objects are supposed to have an external existence, and is the case with no other impressions, whether gentle or violent, voluntary or involuntary. This constancy, however, is not so perfect as not to admit of very considerable exceptions. Bodies often change their position and qualities, and after a little absence or interruption may become hardly knowable. But here it is observable that even in these changes they preserve a coherence, and have a regular dependence on each other, which is the foundation of a kind of reasoning from causation, and produces the opinion of their continued existence. When I return to my chamber after an hour's absence, I find not my fire in the same situation in which I left it, but then I am accustomed in other instances to see a like alteration produced in a like time, whether I am present or absent, near or remote. This coherence, therefore, in their changes, is one of the characteristics of external objects, as well as their constancy. Having found that the opinion of the continued existence of body depends on the coherence and constancy of certain impressions, 
I now proceed to examine after what manner these qualities give rise to so extraordinary an opinion. To begin with the coherence, we may observe that though those internal impressions which we regard as fleeting and perishing have also a certain coherence or regularity in their appearances, yet it is of somewhat a different nature from that which we discover in bodies. Our passions are found by experience to have a mutual connection with and dependence on each other. But on no occasion is it necessary to suppose that they have existed and operated when they were not perceived, in order to preserve the same dependence and connection of which we have had experience. The case is not the same with relation to external objects. Those require a continued existence, or otherwise lose, in a great measure, the regularity of their operation. I am here seated in my chamber with my face to the fire, and all the objects that strike my senses are contained in a few yards around me. My memory, indeed, informs me of the existence of many objects, but then this information extends not beyond their past existence, nor do either my senses or memory give any testimony to the continuance of their being. When, therefore, I am thus seated, and revolve over these thoughts, I hear on a sudden a noise as of a door turning upon its hinges, and a little after see a porter, who advances towards me. This gives occasion to many new reflections and reasonings. First, I never have observed that this noise could proceed from anything but the motion of a door, and therefore conclude that the present phenomenon is a contradiction to all past experience, unless the door, which I remember on the other side of the chamber, be still in being. Again, I have always found that a human body was possessed of a quality which I call gravity, and which hinders it from mounting in the air, as this porter must have done to arrive at my chamber, unless the stairs I remember be not annihilated by my absence. But this is not all. I receive a letter, which upon opening it, I perceive by the handwriting and subscription to have come from a friend who says he is two hundred leagues distant. It is evident I can never account for this phenomenon conformable to my experience in other instances without spreading out in my mind the whole sea and continent between us, and supposing the effects and continued existence of posts and fairies according to my memory and observation. To consider these phenomena of the porter and letter in a certain light, they are contradictions to common experience, and may be regarded as objections to those maxims which we form concerning the connections of causes and effects. I am accustomed to hear such a sound, and see such an object in motion at the same time. 
I have not received in this particular instance both these perceptions. These observations are contrary unless I suppose that the door still remains, and that it was opened without my perceiving it. And this supposition, which was at first entirely arbitrary and hypothetical, acquires a force and evidence by its being the only one upon which I can reconcile these contradictions. There is scarce a moment of my life wherein there is not a similar instance presented to me, and I have not occasion to suppose the continued existence of objects in order to connect their past and present appearances, and give them such an union with each other as I have found by experience to be suitable to their particular natures and circumstances. Here, then, I am naturally led to regard the world as something real and durable, and as preserving its existence, even when it is no longer present to my perception. But though this conclusion from the coherence of appearances may seem to be of the same nature with our reasonings concerning causes and effects, as being derived from custom, and regulated by past experience, we shall find upon examination that they are at the bottom considerably different from each other, and that this inference arises from the understanding, and from custom in an indirect and oblique manner. For it will readily be allowed that since nothing is ever really present to the mind besides its own perceptions, it is not only impossible that any habit should ever be acquired otherwise than by the regular succession of these perceptions, but also that any habit should ever exceed that degree of regularity. Any degree, therefore, of regularity in our perceptions can never be a foundation for us to infer a greater degree of regularity in some objects which are not perceived since this supposes a contradiction, that is, a habit acquired by what was never present to the mind. But it is evident that whenever we infer the continued existence of the objects of sense from their coherence and the frequency of their union, it is in order to bestow on the objects a greater regularity than what is observed in our mere perceptions we remark a connection betwixt two kinds of objects in their past appearance to the senses, but are not able to observe this connection to be perfectly constant, since the turning about of our head or the shutting of our eyes is able to break it. What then do we suppose in this case, but that these objects still continue their usual connection, notwithstanding their apparent interruption, and that the irregular appearances are joined by something of which we are insensible. But as all reasoning concerning matters of fact arises only from custom, and custom can only be the effect of repeated perceptions, the extending of custom and reasoning beyond the perceptions 
can never be the direct and natural effect of the constant repetition and connection but must arise from the cooperation of some other principles i have already observed in part two section four in examining the foundation of mathematics that the imagination when set into any train of thinking is apt to continue even when its object fails it and like a galley put in motion by the oars carries on its course without any new impulse this i have assigned for the reason why after considering several loose standards of equality and correcting them by each other we proceed to imagine so correct and exact a standard of that relation as is not liable to the least error or variation the same principle makes us easily entertain this opinion of the continued existence of body objects have a certain coherence even as they appear to our senses but this coherence is much greater and more uniform if we suppose the objects to have a continued existence and as the mind is once in the train of observing and uniformity among objects it naturally continues till it renders the uniformity as complete as possible the simple supposition of their continued existence suffices for this purpose and gives us a notion of a much greater regularity among objects than what they have when we look no farther than our senses but whatever force we may ascribe to this principle i am afraid it is too weak to support alone so vast an edifice as is that of the continued existence of all external bodies and that we must join the constancy of their appearance to the coherence in order to give a satisfactory account of that opinion as the explication of this will lead me into a considerable compass of very profound reasoning I think it proper, in order to avoid confusion, to give a short sketch or abridgment of my system, and afterwards draw out all its parts in their full compass. This inference from the constancy of our perceptions, like the precedent from their coherence, gives rise to the opinion of the continued existence of body, which is prior to that of its distinct existence and produces that latter principle when we have been accustomed to observe a constancy in certain impressions and have found that the perception of the sun or ocean for instance returns upon us after an absence or annihilation with like parts and in a like order as at its first appearance we are not apt to regard these interrupted perceptions as different which they really are but on the contrary consider them as individually the same upon account of their resemblance but as this interruption of their existence is contrary to their perfect identity and makes us regard the first impression as annihilated and the second as newly created we find ourselves somewhat at a loss, and are involved in a kind of contradiction. 
in order to free ourselves from this difficulty we disguise as much as possible the interruption or rather remove it entirely by supposing that these interrupted perceptions are connected by a real existence of which we are insensible this supposition or idea of continued existence acquires a force and vivacity from the memory of these broken impressions and from that propensity which they give us to suppose them the same and according to the precedent reasoning the very essence of belief consists in the force and vivacity of the conception in order to justify this system there are four things requisite first to explain the principium individuationis or principle of identity secondly give a reason why the resemblance of our broken and interrupted perceptions induces us to attribute an identity to them thirdly account for that propensity which this illusion gives to unite these broken appearances by a continued existence fourthly and lastly explain that force and vivacity of conception which arises from the propensity first as to the principle of individuation we may observe that the view of any one object is not sufficient to convey the idea of identity for in that proposition an object is the same with itself if the idea expressed by the word object were no ways distinguished from that meant by itself we really should mean nothing nor would the proposition contain a predicate and a subject which however are implied in this affirmation one single object conveys the idea of unity not that of identity on the other hand a multiplicity of objects can never convey this idea however resembling they may be supposed the mind always pronounces the one not to be the other and considers them as forming two three or any determinate number of objects whose existences are entirely distinct and independent since then both number and unity are incompatible with the relation of identity it must lie in something that is neither of them but to tell the truth at first sight this seems utterly impossible betwixt unity and number there can be no medium no more than betwixt existence and non-existence after one object is supposed to exist we must either suppose another also to exist in which case we have the idea of number or we must suppose it not to exist in which case the first object remains at unity to remove this difficulty let us have recourse to the idea of time or duration i have already observed in part two section five that time in a strict sense implies succession and that when we apply its idea to any unchangeable object 
it is only by a fiction of the imagination by which the unchangeable object is supposed to participate of the changes of the co-existent objects and in particular of that of our perceptions this fiction of the imagination almost universally takes place and it is by means of it that a single object placed before us and surveyed for any time without our discovering in it any interruption or variation is able to give us a notion of identity for when we consider any two points of this time we may place them in different lights we may either survey them at the very same instant in which case they give us the idea of number both by themselves and by the object which must be multiplied in order to be conceived at once as existent in these two different points of time or on the other hand we may trace the succession of time by a like succession of ideas and conceiving first one moment along with the object then existent imagine afterwards a change in the time without any variation or interruption in the object in which case it gives us the idea of unity here then is an idea which is a medium betwixt unity and number or more properly speaking is either of them according to the view in which we take it and this idea we call that of identity we cannot in any propriety of speech say that an object is the same with itself unless we mean that the object existent at one time is the same with itself existent at another by this means we make a difference betwixt the idea meant by the word object and that meant by itself without going the length of number and at the same time without restraining ourselves to a strict and absolute unity thus the principle of individuation is nothing but the invariableness and uninterruptedness of any object through a supposed variation of time by which the mind can trace it in the different periods of its existence without any break of the view and without being obliged to form the idea of multiplicity or number. End of file 33